Bali Coffee specializes in light roasted single origin coffees, but once a year, the darkness takes over. Introducing the Darkest Day Halloween Roast, a blend of specialty beans roasted darker than any other offering we have ever done in the past. Available now at follycoffee.com. Only available in October. Don't miss out. Hey, this is Rob, and this is episode 51 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. That is Kai. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I know Kai very well. Yep. And, uh, well, I never realized that you guys knew each other until Kai and myself were out um filming a music video with the four on the floor mm-hmm. in like just the middle of nowhere uh, behind flat earth brewing. And if you go back there, you're like, Oh yeah, this is where like illegal activity in St. Paul happens. Mm-hmm. And then I look up and you're just like walking down with a, a bag of coffee and you just hand it straight to Kai. And I'm like, what is going on? I didn't on? know that was going on. I was there for illegal activity and you happen to be, <laughs> and you happen to be shooting the music video there. And I was like, dang it. All these people are around when I'm trying to do illegal activity. Yeah. So you, you did a front with the coffee beans like, Oh I, I just carry one with me, yeah. so if they're ever well, I'm, I have a meeting. It's a, it's a good out. But I'm here with Lee Carter, beverage director, founder of Five Watt Coffee and Big Watt. Do you call it Big Watt Beverage or Big Watt Coffee at this point? Uh, it's Big Watt Beverage now. We've yeah. gone through different iterations, but uh, as we've grown, we've realized that Big Watt Beverage is the 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 best name for it. Yeah, and you know Kai just through the music scene, is that correct? Yeah. So uh, Kai, well, Kai plays music for everyone. He's one of the busiest people I know as far as, uh, as music goes, uh, I play bass. It's been something that I've done for a long time. And, uh, I guess it sort of ties into my coffee story. I, uh, have been a long time musician and coffee was always the job that I could have. Well, you know, leaving for weeks on end and, you know, I could come back and then wouldn't be mad at me. Um, so I've been filling in on bass, uh, with a band called the four on the floor. They're like a local rock yeah. band. And I've been Gabe doing that Douglas. for some years. Yeah, Gabe Douglas. legend. Yeah, great guy. Uh, and there, usually I can do whatever they happen to throw my way. There's probably maybe 20% of the shows that their main guy can't do, and uh, that's just right for me to be able to fill in. I've got just enough time. But uh, one time a tour rolled around, and I, I just wasn't able to do it. The time commitment wasn't right. Uh, and then I'm, I'm watching on my friend's Instagrams, and there's this – this guy filling in on bass. I don't know who he is. I'm like, who is this guy? He's taking my job. And it was Kai. He was a, I, d- I didn't realize at the time that he was primarily a guitarist, but of course he can do all the things. <laughs> um, yeah. And then we ended up, you know, he started filling in on guitar, which he's, uh, you know, much more proficient at. And then I realized like, man, this guy is not only is he an awesome person, but he's just insanely good at guitar. Yeah. I've been on a previous episode and, uh, that intro, I, I was like, um, if I'm going to do this, I should, I feel like all the good podcasts have a real intro, not just like some generic thing. And so I texted him, I was like, Hey, this might be too much of an ask, but could you do like some sort of an intro for the Folly Coffee podcast? I was thinking just like a buildup of guitar and then yelling Folly Coffee podcast. And I didn't get a response for like five minutes. And then he just texted me that finished file. He's like, he's like something like this. And I'm like, no, no, exactly that. Yeah. Like, can I use that? He's like, yeah, I don't care. And I was like, all right, I'm going to send you some coffee now. And so, yeah, that's who we're referring to. Um, but it's, yeah, it's actually a good segue because I know that music is a big part of your story and kind of what led to the start of five watt coffee. At what point 
did it transition from having like, uh, you know, you're gigging and have just coffee jobs to let's go out and start our own cafe. Yeah. So while I was, uh, you know, focusing on music, um, I was working at a, a newly opened cafe called Bull Run Coffee, which uh, if you've been drinking coffee in Minneapolis for, I guess, the past decade, that name would have been familiar for a time. Um, so I was their first barista employee, uh, other than, you know, the manager that opened that shop. His name was Gordon. Great dude. Um, so he, uh, he, in a way, really got me into coffee. I was already very interested in it. I'd already been working in coffee jobs, just not in the specifically specialty realm. And then um, my buddy Matt Call, who's a fellow musician, he also plays bass, also loves coffee. It's a lot of basses. A, <laughs> a lot of bass here in Minnesota, and there's there's more bass to come, just you wait. Uh, <laughs> so That's the weirdest segue uh, ever. Yeah, there's more bass like, to come, don't you very, worry. like, clandestine. <laughs> it actually is tied into the story. Um, so Matt brought me to, it was called Quixotic Coffee, mm-hmm. which they're still around over in, like, the Highland Park area. Mm-hmm. Um, we were really excited because they carried madcap roasters and madcaps like really great. But, uh, you know, thing in Minneapolis is there's, there's so many local roasters, mm-hmm. uh, both of us included. There's, yeah. there's a lot of local coffee in Minneapolis and really not a lot of places to try coffee from out of the city or out of the state, which is pretty unique. And also, you know, really cool in a way, if you think about it, just the amount of local talent in the coffee pool here is just crazy. Um, so we were excited to try this madcap coffee and, uh, I just fell in love with Quixotic and started going back like every day I would work my coffee job at a Dunn brothers and then drive way over to Highland park out of my way just to get coffee. And Gordon, uh, was managing Quixotic coffee at the time. So I'd see him all the time. And eventually I started bugging him for a job and there just wasn't room on the staff. Um, but then he got the opportunity to open bull run coffee. And when that happened, he's like, Hey, uh, I can hire you now. And at the time I was like, well, that's great. But I just got a promotion at my Dunn brothers, which, um, well, very relevant to stuff happening in coffee right now. They're actually owned by a catering company that, um, is run with a union alongside a union. Mm. So as a regular barista, my, not only was my wage higher, but I also got multiple breaks throughout my shift. I got a, uh, a lunch that was like paid break the food is free and it was like good enough so it was like the best coffee job ever and then i became a shift lead uh which meant that i was making like the most money i've ever made in my entire life so i was like no i can't i can't take this job working with this dude uh in specialty coffee because i'm you know making too much money just like hanging out at the (laughs) minneapolis convention center at dunn brothers like this gig's too good to pass up but um i thought about it for a couple of days and i realized i'm like you know what I really need to do this. Like, and at the time, uh, money didn't really matter that much because I was very used to being broke. So I was like, <laughs> you know what? Like I'll just go back to like regular minimum wage coffee stuff and see what happens. So, uh, I was working with him. We did my one year review and I just got back from, uh, this tour out on the West coast. It was the first time that I was hired and flown out for a gig, mm. which was super cool. So I was flown out California, I played this tour from like the Bay Area all the way basically to Canada and back. And it was so much fun. It was like, you know, the time of our lives. It was great. Um, came back, had my one year, year review, and Gordon's like, you know, I don't really have anything 
constructive to say like you're doing well like when you're here you're working hard and you're, you're doing what I want you to do but as your friend um, I see you spending all this time like pouring energy into coffee and then you pour all your energy into music and then you know you do all these other things um, w- with as much effort as you're able to give it and as your friend I would encourage you to like think about a thing that you want to do and do that thing don't try to do five things at once and at the time I was probably 23 and I was like, you can do that. What? <laughs> like what? Uh, it was a brand new concept to me. So I thought about it and was like, all right, I'm going to stop trying to play, you know, like a hundred plus shows a year and like Jeez. go on these long tours uh, and just focus on work, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the time I had not really thought about it very much. I had uh, certainly never thought about owning a coffee shop at that time. Uh, and I never really thought about uh, what my career was other than I want to play music. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided, yeah, I'm going to think about work. And then not long after that, Gordon uh, took an opportunity to work with handsome roasters over in their way out in California and LA. Um, it was owned by some folks, just some well-known names in the coffee industry. Um, and it, yeah, it was like this, this great new exciting thing. He went and took that job. They later got bought by a blue bottle. I think that I've heard that yeah, name before. <laughs> yeah, blue, we all know blue bottle. I'm pretty sure they got by blue got bought by blue bottle. Um, so when he moved, everybody at the coffee shop found new jobs because people hate change, you know, <laughs> afraid of change. Um, and it, at the time, none of us knew who the new manager was going to be. We didn't know like. You know, everyone just assumed like, well, Gordon was amazing. So whatever happens next is going to be terrible because it's not Gordon. Uh, and for me, I was like, well, I, I like this place. I like Bull Run a lot. I like working here. And I hope whoever's next um, is able to keep this place uh, as special as I think it is. So I decided to stay. And uh, the new manager that came along was this guy named Caleb. Um, he's this, uh, this like big, like, teddy bear type of dude um and he moved from michigan like not not overnight but basically overnight he got the job offer from uh the same people that own the cafe also own this uh service company espresso services yeah. yes I, yeah we know yeah es- wait espresso partners oh okay that one yeah i was gonna say <laughs> espresso <laughs> partners. not ESI. not esi i use esi that's why the name is in my head espresso partners they owned espresso partners at the time as well as uh, Bull Run Coffee. So that's how he had that connection. They're like, hey, we've got a manager position open. Do you want to take it? And he's like, yeah, sure. When does it start? And they're like, well, can you drive out tonight? <laughs> so I think it was like a two or three day notice. So he uh, packed his stuff, drove out. Um, so yeah, that's how we met. And we quickly bonded over, um, you know, really bad, first off, really bad puns. You know, we just love telling bad jokes all the time. I'm like, hey, man, this guy's funny. And then, uh, as we're hanging out, um, I uh, started like talking about music, and he's like, "Oh, you play bass? Yeah, I play bass too." And at the time, I was like, "All right, man, sure you do." But then, quickly came to find out, uh, we actually went to the same music school, ten years apart for the same thing. We had a lot of the same teachers, and like shared some interesting stories. And I was living, uh, you know, this part of my twenties that he lived. He's thirteen, thirteen years older than me. So, you know, he had been living that experience a decade and a half <laughs> prior. And then, I, you know, I'm in that spot. And then, uh, yeah, we uh, just we, we started picking up the pieces that bull run together where we had to 
bring a whole new staff on. Um, and we just had to, you know, and for me, I was like, we have a lot of work to retain what I think Bull Run is and uh, sort of get Caleb acclimated to uh, what the business was. And uh, really, specialty coffee was new to like a new idea to him. Um, there is not a lot of that or wasn't a lot of that out in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there, there was a lot of just like familiarizing with each other and then also what the business was and it very quickly through that process um i realized i'm like man we're working really hard for these other people and like we're pretty good at this <laughs> um so one day i walked in and i had this like epiphany the night before that we should open up our own coffee shop um so i walked into work one day and i was like caleb we need to open up our own coffee shop and he looked at me he's like yeah, and the way that I like to explain his reaction was it was as if um, I'd been, like, coming to work every day not wearing shirts. And then one day I came in, I'm like, hey, Caleb, I think I should start wearing shirts. <laughs> He's like, yeah, like, I know. Like, how come you're just thinking of this? Because uh, for him, opening a coffee shop was something that he'd wanted to do for over a decade. He'd hmm. been making uh, just, you know, lots of business models and plans. And he, it's always something that he knew he was working towards. And for me, it was a brand new idea because, um, you know, around the time that I decided, like, I'm going to think about work, you know, whatever that means, uh, I felt like, you know, I don't think I ever want to manage a coffee shop because all of my managers don't seem to really like their job that much. You know, they're really tired. They work a lot. Um, From what I understand, they're underpaid and uh, they don't seem to like it. And then all of the coffee shop owners that I had known and met like their liked their position even worse, you know? Yeah. So, so I was like, okay, I don't think I want to manage and I definitely don't want to own a coffee shop. Um, but then, you know, getting to know Caleb and working with Caleb, I kind of realized that, uh, you know, work is going to be as hard as you make it. Um, and if you, you know, if you plan for your job in a way, uh, that, you know, that makes your job easier, it will be easier. So one of the things that, I saw just like a small thing was um, he was doing ordering one day and he's like, how come there's not anything in stock that we need? Like there's like barely any garbage bags and like we need those all the time. So he went out to restaurant depot, got like everything we needed and another backup. And then all of a sudden he wasn't making like, you know, Gordon was making a couple of trips to restaurant depot every week. And now Caleb was only going there every other (laughs) time. And I was like, Oh, like, yeah, the, you know, Jobs can be difficult, but you can find ways to make them easier. And if you do that, you're probably going to like your job a little more. Yeah, it's all this yeah. stuff where people are like, no, that's not how we do it. And you go, why? Because that's just not how it's done. Yeah, it's just not, <laughs> I just don't do it that way. Um, yeah, and as uh, I've gotten more into business, uh, you know, through throughout the years, it's now been over six years, I've become very interested in systems. I love yeah. systems, you know, ways to make things more efficient, you know, more streamlined, uh, and I'm really interested in making systems that people that are working don't even notice. It just makes their life easier. Um, yeah. So I, I came into the coffee shop one day. I was like, all right, man, we need to do this for ourselves. And he's like, yeah, well, uh, I'm broke. I'm pretty sure you're broke. How are we going to do this? And I was like, well, I don't know. Like, I think I know a guy that like might invest maybe. So I went out to a uh, breakfast with this guy and, uh, he said yes at the breakfast and I was like, so like, that's it. Like you'll invest in the coffee shop. That's it. And he's like, yeah, I was like, 
okay, uh, well, I guess we're going to start looking for spots now. <laughs> so uh, we, we eventually found the spot on 38th and Nicolette in the Kingfield neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, That's the original location, right? The original yeah, location, yeah. yep. And, and opened our first coffee shop. It was crazy. And that was, yeah, it was over six years ago. We opened May 2nd, uh, six years ago. Dang. So, yeah, it's been wild. And I remember, um, so when I was, when Folly was still just an idea in my head, I was still kind of going through the full vetting process of like, let me find out if I actually want to do this. And there was this big pivotal trip where I came home and it's when I went to tour cafe imports and was like, oh my gosh, okay, this importer is here. So that's huge. Cause I could pick up one bag at a time. There, there was a huge piece of the puzzle fixed. And I also just emailed like every shop and roaster I could find and just be like, Hey, I'd love to pick your brain. And most people didn't respond as, and honestly being on the flip side of it, I could, I could see why, because it's, I, I always try to meet with everybody because of this, but I never realized it's probably more common than what I thought, but you're one of the few people to respond. They're like, yeah, I'd love to sit down and meet with you. And we met at your shop and uh, that was awesome to kind of have that moment where we're sitting with you uh, or I'm sitting with you, I should say. And like, realizing that the coffee community in Minneapolis is awesome and that what you're doing is so different than what I think a lot of specialty high-end roasters are doing. And I really like that about the brand that it's like, it's very tied to the shop and the, your music background and the branding is so different than what you see in a lot of shops. And if I'm remembering the story correctly, I might be skipping ahead a bit here, but this has now led to what has become big watt beverage on the ready to drink cold brew and tell me if i'm remembering the story correctly is that is it called open streets yes that you had the open streets in kingfield because this is one of the cooler like origin stories of because for for those that don't know big watt beverage is like regionally i guess you could even say nationally distributed this we're we're national yeah nationally distributed ready to drink cold brew like you have your straight black cold brew which i think is one of the best ready to drink cold brews on the market. Thank you. And then your flavored cold brews, like the different flavors you have. The thing that's impressive to me, because I'm always like really, really looking at labels for sugar, especially, is the flavor you get out of these, the sweetness you get with very, very small, small amounts of sugar yeah. is unlike any other cold brew out there. You get the Starbucks, you get any other cold brew that's a sweet flavor and it's loaded you're like i might as well just have a donut and a black yeah. coffee i mean like this kombucha is a great example it's why i love bootleggers so much it's like two grams of sugar yeah and i was expect i tasted your cold brew for the first time i think like the honey nut flavor and i was like oh this has got to be loaded with sugar and it's just it's like a few grams or something like wh- one- yeah, it's it, there's very little in there uh so well to touch on that there, there's actually a bunch i want to touch on in the uh the moment you've been uh, yeah, talking. I'm going yeah. to skip back to yeah. open or uh, open streets, yeah. but, but, uh, so just with like sugar and flavor, um, there's like kind of a two edged sword, like, you know, why do all beverages out there have a ton of sugar? And then, uh, with coffee stuff, for example, why does every ready to drink coffee beverage have dairy in it? Um, all these questions like, you know, why, why are things done this way? And I think there's, uh, two sides to it. The, the biggest one being that is that Pretty much every brand out there has their stuff uh, produced for them by someone else. That's like you know a large beverage manufacturer, and they just kind of have standard practices. And then uh, you know for them, it's like, well, you know, this is how we do it. You know, if you want to put vanilla in your thing, here's our vanilla formula. It's this much sugar, this much of a you know vanilla flavoring, and it tastes like this. Here you go, and here's you know, maybe three versions of that. Um, and then, you know, the question of like, yeah, so why is there dairy and why is there that much sugar? There's like kind of this, uh, 
I think this expectation where people and I guess in the, the higher end of the, the marketing teams and the product development teams are like, Oh yeah, everyone wants sugar and milk in their coffee. So that's how we're going to make it. And like, that's just the end of the story. Um, but you know, when you're doing things yourself, we were producing our, our own coffees and we, we still are. Um, we get to decide like, we're going to do it however we want. We're not kind of held to the standards of another manufacturer's process. We can just kind of do it however we want. Um, and going down that path led us to a ton of victories and, uh, you know, a lot of roadblocks and a lot of opportunities to learn. Um, you know, I, I always kind of joke, it's not funny, but you know, we spent a lot of time and a lot of someone else's money figuring <laughs> this out. It's a, one of our, uh, founding partners in big Watt gave us the, I guess the seed investment to, uh, do a lot of this product development. And, you know, along the way we, we got into it in a very naive sense where we're like, you know, I'm like, Oh yeah, I know how to make coffee. You know, like this is not a big problem. Now we just put it in a bottle or a can. What else is there to it? Well, that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that ties back to the start of how you got into it. I mean, that's a perfect segue that you've got uh, open streets in Kingfield right on the street of your cafe. It's a huge when they were a thing, street festival, and everyone comes out, and there's vendors and food and music, and you're like, we need to serve coffee at this thing, but it's summer. Why don't we just make a big batch of cold brew and put it in bottles and sell it? And you, if I remember correctly, you just sold out like really quickly, and yep. then you're like, oh, there, this is a thing. This is like a very real thing, and obviously at the point you're like hand bottling, hand capping, and that's yeah. what, at what point from there did you go from like we sold out of these cold brew bottles insanely fast to having the seed of that idea of like this, we need to move forward faster on cold brew itself. So we had a, a distributor, um, I think they were called core beverage came to us and we're like, Hey, um, some of our, uh, some of our clients that we distribute product to had your stuff at open streets and they <laughs> want to get it. How can we get it so we can sell it to them? And we are like, um, we don't know. And me and so Jason, he, uh, he's one of the other founders of big Watt. Um, yeah, there, there's a little more that goes into like how all the, the people came together, but long story short, uh, the four primary people that started big Watt was, it was me, Caleb, this guy, Jason, and then this guy, Alex. Um, but me and Jason did all of the, uh, brewing and all like the product design, um, all of the like, bottling and capping and like putting the stickers and all that stuff. Uh, and it took us about two weeks, uh, start to finish from like going and getting the bottles and cleaning them and brewing and packaging and doing all that stuff to make about 250 units, which is <laughs> not very many units. <laughs> that you just know? hurt my back here. Yeah. <laughs> not very many units. Uh, so we, we got approached by this distributor who's, you know, just kind of, seeing you know testing the waters uh and we we realized like oh we we can distribute this stuff that's a huge opportunity but uh jason and i immediately were like well we're not doing it the way that we just did that like it would take us forever to make a pallet um so immediately we started trying to figure out uh what are some other ways that we can produce more coffee at once how can we bottle more at once how can we you know and that sort of led us down the path to we're building a brewery and we're buying a canning line so when you're in that that is like that's so awesome and insane at the same time because 
when you were evaluating that decision, was there a discussion of something like a co-pack or could we find someone to produce this for us? Or was that never an option because of the way you guys do things? Um, it ended up becoming not an option. So we had a unique opportunity to work in a brewery called Burning Brothers. They're over in St. Paul. Mm-hmm. Really fantastic folks over there. They are a gluten-free brewery and their product is really fantastic. Like I think they make a good beer and that's coming from a person that like, I don't really like beer that much. Uh, I love all beverages. Beer is one that I think could be better. (laughs) (laughs) And there's, you know, there's a lot of beer out there that I think uh, is good. And there's way more beer out there that I'm like, wow, they should have worked on this more. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I kind of feel the same way. (laughs) And, you know, now that I, I, now that we have a company that produces uh, beverage on a large scale, I get it. You know, it's not as easy as making a batch and just like dumping it mm-hmm. because you wanted to like dial it in a little bit. You know, when, when I make a, a specialty drink for the menu at five watt, I'm dumping out like 10 ounces of liquid at a time. Not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Dumping out 600 gallons of liquid on the other hand is, is a big deal. So I, I do understand that uh, the time and the cost that it takes to go through like, you know, 15 versions of your IPA is like maybe not realistic, yeah. but, but at the same time, I'm like, I just wish that, uh, there was more opportunity for people to develop their product a little more before it ends up in, you know, in yeah. Well, ever. especially cause the way I think about it is it, some, there is a time every once in a while you have to dump out a fair amount of something cause it just isn't tasting right. And there is that temptation of like, ah, if we just send out this one batch, it's not even that many, it's fine. But you, you almost have to think of it as, Every, just assume, especially when you're a younger company, that every person tasting that batch is tasting your brand for the first time ever. Yep. And every person that tastes that batch is going to go, "This isn't that good. I'm never buying it again." And so, it's it sucks when you when you're on lean budget and you're trying not to like ha- be wasteful like yeah. that. But you have to assume that you potentially lost however many people tasted the first time. That could be a lifelong customer. And it's like the second you stop thinking like that is when the corners become a little (laughs) easier to cut. And you're like, eh, this one's pretty good. It'll be fine. Nobody will even notice. And I think people notice more than we'd like to think. Well, uh, I always say uh, you can't fool the customer. And I I don't think anyone's trying to trick anyone. Uh, But what I mean by that is... You know, any any customer, anyone that's out there experiencing a place or a product knows intrinsically how they feel about it, whether or not they're able to articulate what it was. Uh, so you go to a place and you're like, I don't really like it there. And that's all it takes to be like, you know, they didn't like it. They don't have to say why. They're just like, I don't really like that place. And maybe there were like three or four things that you could actually name. But, you know, whether or not someone can say like it was this and it was that and that's why I don't like it. They know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, that's, that's very true with product and, uh, everyone has varying degrees of, you know, how, uh, articulate of a, a palette they have, but, you know, everyone knows if something's like good or not. <laughs> I think I've referenced this on the podcast before, but one of my favorite studies of all time. And cause one of the questions sometimes we'll even ask ourselves is like, why are we putting so much work into like making sure every batch, cause like most people don't really know the difference. And so the study was, it was done on a college campus and they got a group of jam experts and they had them rank 25 jams from this is the highest quality jam to this is the lowest quality jam out of 25. So you have jam experts rank them. Here's our one through 25. Then they go out and get random college kids, have them taste through the jams and then rank them one to 25. 
And there was a very, very high correlation between the experts' rankings and the random college kids' rankings. They redid it with another random sampling of college students and said, give us the reason why you're ranking it this way. And when they had to reason why it was top to bottom, there's no correlation between it. So almost asking someone to explain why they don't like it when they're not an expert at that thing you're going to get an answer that doesn't correlate to what it actually is. And I think in coffee, like you've probably experienced this a lot. People go, what don't you like about, it? Oh, it's bitter. Right. And that's like, that's, or it's either bitter or acidic. And those are the two things. That's like the words that people know. And there are certain coffees where it's like, I, I could agree with you on some things, but that's just absolutely not what's wrong with this right. coffee. And, yep. um, and I think that's a really good way to put it is that even if someone can't explain fully or like really know why people know if they like it or not, even if it's just like, I don't know, it just doesn't feel right. Right. So yeah, with, with the, the beer uh, community, there's a lot of times I think there's this other issue and this is coming from someone like also with music and arts, like being in the creative world. I think that creating beverage sort of can produce a similar thing where I remember when I was you know younger and in high school making music with my friends, we'd write a song and it, that would be it. Like that was the song. It was perfect, you know? Uh, and then as I got older, I realized like, Oh, you gotta be uh, willing to be positively critical about what it is that you're creating. And uh, you gotta be willing to know when to say like, all right, this is good, but I can make it better. Mm-hmm. And I've definitely experienced beer throughout the city where I'm like, I'm pretty sure someone is just like so excited that they made a hazy IPA and like, this is it, but it's like fine. Uh, so the folks at burning brothers, they make some really fantastic product. I, d- I don't actually know what their development process is like, but I just remember being continually impressed by everything you know they'd they'd walk into the uh the brew room at like you know it's 11 in the morning and me and jason are there developing big watt on one of the free pieces of equipment and like hey uh try this like lime shandy we just we're just about to release it and like every time they would like put something new that they're working on in front of me i'm like man these guys are so good and i I don't know what it is they're just you know they're talented folks Mm -hmm. um so we had the opportunity to do a lot of our development there instead of you know, being forced to do co-packing stuff mm-hmm. because as we were getting ready to grow, we're like, all right, we're ready or, you know, our distributors are ready to take our product, but we don't have it yet. So how can we get it out the doors fast? Do we go through a co-packing relationship or can we find a way to make it ourselves? And we found this really incredible opportunity to do our own production in the burning brothers space, which like if, uh, you know, if we went out and tried to find that same opportunity today, it would, it would just never happen. We just got incredibly lucky. So we we got to learn a lot about what different equipment is and what it does, what its current limitations are with the way that it's set up for brewing beer, and um, you know how we might change those pieces of equipment if we could. So when we went to build out our own brewery, we uh, kind of had this like wish list in our head, like, okay, here here's the equipment that we want to use to do this process, but I really wish it did this, that, and the other thing. And we found um, a manufacturer in the U.S., actually there in Wisconsin, called Quality Tank Solutions, and, uh, you know, brought this uh, wish list to them. And then, you know, one of the head engineers, uh, she's also one of the owners of the company. Uh, She's just brilliant. You know, like we'd throw these things at her and, we, you know, we'd say them like, all right, we don't want to sound ridiculous, but can you do this? And every time she's like, oh, yeah, that's easy. And we're like, oh, really? <laughs> and so they they were able to build all the equipment the way we wanted it to be done. And 
yeah, before you, before we knew it, we were um, set up in our own production facility, brewing our stuff with like this specialized equipment that, to our knowledge, was uh, the only equipment like that being used at the time. Now I am positive that other people have equipment similar to ours because you know uh, the ready to drink coffee industry has exploded and mm-hmm. it almost in like a supernova type of sense where it exploded. Everyone was doing it like doing ready to drink stuff across the country. And then the category like shrunk to a focused set of like, all right, these are the people that are still doing it and that have like survived that flash. Yeah. And now, um, interestingly, the, like the single serve ready to drink thing is continuing to shrink in, uh, and the, th- the thing that's taking its place is more large format stuff for people that are drinking stuff at home. And yeah. So instead of like, you know, taking one for the road, they're like, all right, I want to take a, you know, like a gallon of cold pressed for the week. Yeah. So the industry is definitely like shifting and changing, but um, yeah, all that to say the, the industry definitely like grew exponentially as did the understanding of like how to brew cold press on a large scale and um, how to get something that, actually tasted like it might in a coffee shop. <laughs> um, and that was our goal with Big Watt. So, uh, you know, I appreciate that you like our product, but our, our goal from the start was how can we make this taste like it does at the coffee shop? And the first thing that we realized when we started working with traditional brewing equipment, which kind of goes back to um, our, our conversation way earlier, like, you know, why does all the ready-to-drink stuff on the – the market have this much sugar and like dairy in it. And why does it taste like this? Um, the, like the physical production process also has industry standards. Like it's brewed like this to this ratio. And most importantly, it's filtered this way. And then, you know, you're ready to drink it. And that filtering process is unlike anything that you ever see in a coffee shop. Um, when you brew like a toddy, yeah, the giant plastic bucket, you're using, uh, a nylon sack and then a paper filter. And then you just like throw that in the strainer, it strains out. And it, that filtering process is not very intense. It gets the, the large particulate and like, and that's it, but there's tons of sediment that get through. And, um, a lot of traditional, you know, large scale beverage brewing stuff uses, uh, a variety of different filters. Uh, one that I believe is most common as you know, we, we've tasted every single ready to drink coffee product we've ever come across. And most of them have this like really weird thin body, mm-hmm. but you can tell that there's a lot of coffee, like coffee to water ratio. You can tell there's a lot of coffee in the product, but it tastes thin. It's like how, thin body, dark roast. Yeah. You're like, how is this possible? It's like strong, but weak all at once. Like, <laughs> what is going on? Um, and we, we learned through the time that we sent our coffee through a traditional filtering process called a, uh, it's like a DE filter. And basically, uh, it's like all these like screens that you fill with this like organic, like product, uh, and it, it does a very good job filtering liquid. Um, and you're, you know, you're left with like certain, a certain, uh, like micron size of solids as well as like some oils and all this stuff. Um, and the benefit to filtering to that level is you're able to filter out like 
certain type of bacteria that can cause beverage to go bad because, you know, they have a, a micron size as well. So like, you know, our, our micron size is, uh, you know, greater than the size of the, like the sediment in these oils, but it's smaller than the size of these bacteria. So you'll have a product that's cleaner and has a better shelf life viability. Yeah. Um, and that's like an industry standard thing because a shelf life is a very important thing. Well, that's like an RTD. That's a, that's it. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure most distributors would say not shelf stable, not taking it. Exactly. And you know, we, we had that issue where, um, we didn't know that coffee could go about so bad, you know, <laughs> <laughs> until we started putting it into our own packages and, um, doing some shelf life testing and, uh, realizing like, wow, coffee can go bad way faster than we might've thought. And that, uh, you know, in, in the coffee shop context, it, it was just so different when you're at a coffee shop, your barista makes you the coffee on the spot and then you drink it within the next half an hour, maybe more, but you know, you don't wait three weeks before you like take a sip of your latte, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, or more. Uh, so that, that was a new thing for us where, you know, realizing in the distributed world, by the time the beverage like shows up into people's hands, like it's pretty old. I mean, it's not actually old, but like the difference of it was made an hour ago to is made a month ago. Yeah. Very different. So you know, we, we realized there was a lot of ways for coffee to go bad and uh, also realized like, oh, that's why these industry standard practices exist. You know, a co-packer isn't going to make something that they can't guarantee the, the shelf life on because that's that's a liability to them. And on the same hand, uh, you know, a brand that's working with a producer isn't going to get something given to them that doesn't have a guaranteed shelf life. So many of these coffees go through like this intense filtering process, but right there, um, it all of a sudden it doesn't taste like really like anything that you'd have at a coffee shop. There's this like wateriness to mm -hmm. it. Um, regardless of how much, uh, you know, like oils and it, like overall like extraction you have in the product itself, you can tell like, there's just something different about this and it doesn't taste like it does at the coffee so, shop. So when you were doing this filtering process, did you have the like shelf stability and that bacteria side in mind or was it purely about taste? And then that also happened to be a byproduct of the filtration process you were so using. We were always taste first. We were going through the process of figuring out how to brew on a large scale with the goal of taste in mind, because uh, at the time we didn't really understand uh, how rigorous uh, shelf stability was going to be like, I, we just kind of thought like, Oh yeah, like it's coffee, you know, like how hard can it be? It's coffee and water. How hard can it be to make it shelf stable? Mm. Uh, and you know, once we figured out how we wanted it to taste, we're like, cool. Now we just have to figure out how to make it shelf stable. And what we discovered is it's very, di very difficult. It's very hard to make it uh shelf stable. So Throughout the process, we did figure out uh, some some key ways to improve and you know guarantee shelf stability, and we're we're very proud of our product because uh, to this day, as far as I'm aware, it's the only coffee and water product that's just coffee and water that's not pasteurized. There's no additives, no stabilizers, no preservatives, no nothing um, with an extended shelf life. It. Uh, the, the only thing about it is we ask that it's being kept in cold storage with our distributors at all times. Mm -hmm. um, 
temperature is something that can cause like in the event that there's something in the product, like somehow your process wasn't uh, up to the cleanliness standards and like some tiny bit of bacteria got in there. Temperature can cause uh, that swing to the swing being um, the growth of bacteria uh, that causes it to either happen at all or happen faster. Um, so we ask that our stuff is kept in cold storage, even though we have um, over a year of tested data that shows that like all of our batches don't have uh, any instance of bacteria that can cause a product to go bad. It's just like, it's just another level of safety. Yeah. But again, it's the only coffee and water product that tastes like it, like tastes like it would at a coffee shop with an extended shelf life. There's a few other manufacturers out there. Stumptown, uh, I believe their product right now, it's either 90 or maybe 180 days, something like that. It's definitely an extended shelf life mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to if you don't have good practices, you're lucky to get two weeks. Yeah, and I I feel like the two most common things I've seen are heat treating, which I think just kills off flavor instantly. Like you're just going to get a stale tasting product or like citric acid is another one to lower the pH. And that that, that just makes it taste like coffee with citric acid. Um, I remember there was a brand that I tasted that uh, everything about it in my mind it was a little wild, but citric acid was one of the components that they used for shelf stability. And they, they had to do it because they used such a high brew ratio that their pH was already a little wacky. So they had to balance it out pretty aggressively with uh, citric acid. And I drink it. I'm like, this tastes like lemon, like lemon covered peanuts. <laughs> There are some out there where you go, like, you have to wonder. You're like, I wonder if they, did they taste this before yeah, it went this, out the door? This doesn't taste great. But, you know, uh, some people did like that product. So, it's like, whatever. <laughs> some people like it, allegedly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But uh, we're, we're very proud of our product and we're, you know, really happy to see that we were able to crack this code um, that met our original incredibly naive goal of making a ready-to-drink distributed product that tasted like it did in the coffee shop uh, and meets um, these shelf stability standards that is required to distribute the product because, you know, no customer of ours at, you know, at home drinking our product cares that there's a shelf life. Like, hey, Billy, check it out. This this coffee has a 12-month shelf life. Like, no, no way. <laughs> no one cares. Yeah. No, no consumer cares, but, you know, distributors, that's like one of their top priority concerns so we're really proud that we have something that appeals both to the you know the people are going to drink the product it tastes really good it tastes like it does at a coffee shop um and for the purpose of our distributors uh it has a very extended shelf life and i haven't seen anything that meets those standards we call it process purity Mm -hmm. uh that you know again no pasteurization and then no additive stabilizers preservatives nothing artificial um yeah, there's, there's other, like, coffee and water stuff, like Chameleon, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, they have an extended shelf life, and they can be out in ambient temps, but uh, you can tell that it was very intensely filtered, mm-hmm. and it was pasteurized, and, like, yeah, it's not, like, terrible. And yeah, that's a good way to like put it. it, and I think that that's a perfect example of a quality, especially of coffee, that, you know, if you're not a high, you know, if you're not a super coffee nerd, that 
like mouthfeel or right. like how the coffee feels on my tongue. Like if you try to describe that to somebody, it's always comes off as awkward. That's a really <laughs> good way to put it. That a lot of these cold brews, you're like, the flavor's not bad. Like the, it's not bad, but it just, it's not something about it is off. And it's yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like dark roasted and like full of that flavor, but like it's thin it's which is so not indicative of a dark roasted coffee which is kind of the standard for a lot of the cold brews out there and i think that's that's what's great about yours is like it has the body and like the flavors actually there the heat hasn't killed it off it doesn't have some weird preserve like the citric acid is the one where i'm like yeah you're you're literally putting lemon acidity into like in throwing (laughs) everything off about a coffee and it's like like there's very few coffees where that's going to work and some people like lean into it and like put it in the description that like the bright acidity of this coffee i was like it's not the acidity of the coffee that you're tasting then you put in there yeah and you know again like i always uh try to like have the anecdote of imagine that your barista like opened a fridge poured a cold brew into your cup and then was like hang on and then like sprinkled citric acid <laughs> here you go like that would <laughs> that would be so strange and that would never happen and again that's our goal with that's why we didn't want to do anything to our coffee we wanted to really be like it was at the coffee shop like that that true um on, on a beverage standpoint that true experience that just tastes like it did in coffee shop so how long of a process was that from let's get let's we found the equipment manufacturer we custom manufactured the equipment let's lock down the recipe shelf stability to launching with that distributor we did go through that distributor but we i uh, think things changed and grew so, so much as we went uh we don't use that distributor anymore um a lot of distributors have very specific relationships like all right if you use us uh you can only use us but in these regions and like you know under this circumstance in this shelf space and whatever um so i am so grateful that we've had some really fantastic uh, people on our sales team that actually know how to decode all of that kind of stuff and know how to be strategic with it too Mm -hmm. because it's you know, you might look at one distributor uh, and be like, wow, this uh, working with UNFI, which we do work with, but uh, we could work with UNFI and they'll like, they'll be the door to all of our hopes and dreams. Like we just have to do it. Um, but someone that has experience in that might be like, well, you know, this is good, but maybe not yet because if you do that, you can't do this, but you should really do this first. So um, I've been really grateful, especially with Big Watt for all of the incredibly talented and like super smart folks that have believed in us and helped us grow and uh, get to a point where we are a national brand, um, which just, it's insane to me. Like I'll have people text me a picture of a coffee, like of our stuff on a shelf. I'm like, where are you? And like, I'm in Denver. I'm in Texas. I'm like way out in Washington. I'm like, you know what like what store is that that's amazing like that's so cool um, <laughs> which to them they're probably like how do you not know you're not yeah. in this store but yeah. when a distributor takes your product they go out and go okay i, I can see it here 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 and here and yeah. then they go out and do it uh what, what do you think it was about the big watt cold brew portfolio I, I i think the branding is really attractive like i said i think it's really different than what a lot of coffee people will focus on and so i think it differentiates it from a branding standpoint so i do think that's a big part of like somebody buying it the first time but in terms of the continued success you've had what do you think it is about your portfolio versus because it's such a crowded space with some people with a lot a lot of funding behind them so how are you able to compete effectively on a national scale with some of these huge hitters in the industry yeah it's it's nuts the amount of uh saturation that we've been able to achieve with like 
not a lot of money. You know, like we're we're still a very small company. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we are definitely not Blue Bottle. We're definitely not Stumptown. We're not you know Chameleon Highbrew. Uh, we're not even close to any of those people. Like their marketing budgets and like the money that they spend on getting in shelves is like I don't even know. You know what the multiplier is compared to what we might think about being able to spend. Yeah, the things they just like they don't even blink twice at when they're like, yep. "Here's our stocking fee," and it ends up being hundreds of thousands of dollars just to get on the shelf in yeah. a chain. Yeah, and I think sometimes the, the average consumer doesn't think about, oh, why do all these different grocery stores sets look the same? It's like because it's the people with the money that, like, yeah, a fifty dollars shelving fee might not seem like a lot for one store, but when they've got hundreds of stores across the entire country, yeah, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars just to get on a shelf in some places. Yeah, and well, you know, a lot of people don't realize that there's this like pay to play scenario, which, uh, yeah, if you have the the budget for it, it's great and it's worth it, but. um we don't really have that money just like lying around it. <laughs> you know, at least to do it on the high level that we see people doing out there. So for us, I think it was the ability to have this um, sort of like specialty grade specialized product that was unique, but still like super familiar mm-hmm. um, was competitive in price. And it met like all these shelf life criteria because everything else that would come across these people's plates were like, yeah, it's like a small, like either local brand or just like a small brand. Um, so that that's definitely appealing to c- uh, customers. They're like, well, you know, everyone has had Stumptown by now. Like, it's great, it's delicious, but I want to try something else. Like, what's this? Oh, this like small brand looks cool. Um, people are really excited to try other, you know, small brands, um, but not a lot of small brands are able to deliver something that, you know, meets all these appealing criteria for a distributor. Mm-hmm. Be it, uh, you know, again, like price, quality, and shelf stability. Um, so we meet all those marks, but more importantly, uh, like I mentioned, we have a lot of people that really believe in us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a thing that uh, every time I take a step back and look, it's like incredibly humbling to be like, wow, all these people that are involved with Big Watt and Five Watt are here because they believe in what we have and what we're doing. And they, you know, they really see some potential in it. Um, with the big Watt team, a lot of those folks don't even drink coffee <laughs> <laughs> at first. Like the first time it happened, someone came on like, yeah, I don't really drink coffee. I was like, that's funny, you know, <laughs> but then it kept happening. And I was like, wow, like all these people that don't really drink coffee, um, see, the the uniqueness of the I guess the full set of things that we brought to the table, um, and again like it it's not that we got lucky we worked very hard to create this product but uh, had we known going into it how difficult it would have been to achieve all of those parameters like I don't know if we would have we probably would have been like okay let's just do the industry standard way of doing things yeah. like that's easy and it's going to guarantee you know our claims it'll be easy um, but you know. Thankfully, we were incredibly naive and uh, <laughs> and stubborn, and we decided to figure out like, well, I, I get we decided we're doing it this way. We are going to do this, and um, both myself and Jason are very, uh, you know, we're, we're very stubborn in that way. Like, we set out to do it this way. We're going to do it, yeah. and um, between the two of us, we came to a lot of solutions that. Um, other people haven't quite yet figured out yet either because they don't know that they're possible. Um, and yeah, we, we didn't know 
again, we didn't know that uh, the possibility of our solutions w- was just so like far out there. We thought like, oh, yeah. Well, and it's the type of thing, too, that if you went to a co-packer and said, we want to create a shelf-stable product that doesn't have additives or is not heat-treated, they'd say, we're not, we don't do that. Yep. And then if you said, well, can we work with you on creating a process for them? They'd be like, we're not going to assume the liability of taking on something like that. And I think one thing I've been thinking more and more about, especially as there's all these closures happening during COVID and like the, the this friction between workers and business owners happening that I think one thing that is undervalued that business owners uh, take on is risk. And so the risk you take on by building your own brewery for cold brew and like creating a product that isn't pasteurized or have the uh, stabilizers or those additives into it is a risk to even go in and begin that process. Because most people would say, I don't care how hard you work. It's probably not going to happen. And then it happens and you realize, oh, now we have in the cold brew category an actual point of differentiation, which most of them, their point of differentiation is like, mm, that's <laughs> not different. I think everyone does that. And that's, yep. and it comes through in the flavors, the key thing. Like you said, no one cares. Like no consumers like, oh, that shelf stability is awesome. But <laughs> because you go, don't go through those like normal processes, it tastes better. And it's yeah. like, which is so rare in an RCD product. It's so many times it's these large companies. They're like, this category is exploding. We have to bring an offering how quickly can we do it? Who already makes it? All right, let's either buy them or do this. And yep. that that's what I think separates it back. So to kind of finish out the episode, let's jump back. So you have your first location of five watt. What year was that open? That, six, six uh, years ago, you said? Yeah, there was six years ago. So yeah, 2014. And uh, now you have how many locations? We have four. Four locations. So was that something that when you opened it, you're like, this is our goal. We're going to open and expand locations. Or how did that end up happening throughout the years? So yeah, originally, if if you would ask what our five year plan was, uh, we would have loved to have multiple locations at that five year mark, and then around that time, we would start thinking about roasting our own coffee. Um, things did not happen that way, so we launched Big Watt. Uh, really, again, like so, the way that Big Watt happened in short was, I got approached by Jason, who saw what we were doing at Five Watt, and was like, hey. Like, this is cool. I just want to talk. And he kind of wanted to pitch his services. He had done um, some cocktail uh, development and design, some menu design for cocktail. And he's like, what you're doing is cool. It's cocktail-inspired coffee. Um, Cocktail's my focus. Coffee's your focus. Maybe we'd have some synergy here. And as the conversation went on, uh, I knew that he was perfect for this other idea, just an idea that Caleb and I had to do Big Watt, where we wanted to – put coffee into bottles and I, I wanted to name it something else because I'm like, if it leaves my storefront, it kind of freaks me out to have my coffee shop's name on it. And especially if we s- distribute it, it's so smart. Yeah. So we, you know, and we, we have questioned that like, should we have just left it? I don't know. It, and now it's, no, just, I, it's all, I, I, I think people, they think of one thing as one thing. And the second, so it's five watt, the cafe is at the, I think yeah, it's such a good idea. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm happy we split it off, especially for as much as big watt has grown and become a thing of its own. Um, I, you know, I am happy we made that choice. If it just was small scale coffee distribution, I might've been like, okay, we should have left it at five Y, but because it, again, it's become so big and it's such a thing of its own. I'm happy that it's, yeah, it's something else. Um, but yeah, it is like, man, Jason's going to be perfect for this idea. We have big Watt. So I, after the meeting, I took him downstairs to meet Caleb and I was trying to explain, I'm like, 
uh, Jason, big, big Y, you know, it's going to be perfect. It's going to be amazing. And uh, neither of them really knew what was going on. But I'm like, no, like we, we have to join forces and figure out what Big Y is together. Um, so, yeah, Open Streets came around and, uh, you know, six months later, we're launching a whole nother business completely separate business, which was not part of the business plan. <laughs> you know, we, we didn't ever think that we would do that. Uh, but here we are six months and we started our next company. Um, and then the, the four cafes kind of, I mean, again, we, we did have the intent to open more cafes, but they all sort of happened on their, their own organic timing in their own ways. We were looking at potential second locations before we even finished building out our first store. We did not have the money and we weren't actually going to do it, but we're out, we're always like interested in, um, just knowing what's out there, Mm -hmm. um, getting some mental comparisons like, okay, this neighborhood had this kind of rent. These are the kind of places. And it was like good, just a good mental activity to like be looking. Um, and then at the same time, you never know, maybe you find the perfect spot. So it took us three years to find the location that, uh, we were ready to put our second location into. And right around that time, uh, and that, that's the East Hennepin store in mm. Northeast. Um, right around that time, we got approached to do the keg and case market. And this was a year and a half before it opened, maybe two years. So uh, that thing was like sort of this back burner thing where we walked through the space when it was like just a big empty warehouse, like full of pigeons and like broken <laughs> cement. Like that was all it was. It was, it was crazy in there. It looked like a, like a scene from like Tony Hawk's pro skater without the ramps. Like, just like, (laughs) I know exactly what you mean. Scary warehouse. Um, yeah, it's cool to walk through the King case market now and just remember what it used to look like. But, um, both of those locations ended up opening way closer in time to each other than we might've thought because opening the store Northeast took longer than we thought it would, as does anything, you know, opening a location. Yeah. It takes way longer (laughs) than you think it's going to. So we thought they're going to maybe open like two years apart, but it ended up being like a year apart from each other. And then um, something pretty special happened. I was uh, out meeting my, uh, this girl I was dating at the time, I was meeting her parents. We were uh, eating dinner and then I got a phone call from Caleb and it's like Christmas Eve, Eve. I'm meeting my girlfriend's parents. Mm -hmm. I get this phone call. I'm like, I think I need so like I got up and I was like, Hey guys, I'll be right back. I'm going to take this phone call. And, uh, Caleb's like, Hey, um, I just got a, a flurry of texts from Pat. She's the owner of the building where bull run mm-hmm. where we met. Uh, she's the owner of that building. And he's like, I got this flurry of texts from her. Um, she thinks that the bull run guys are going to be like going out of business and wants to know if we want to put a five watt there. And I was like, yes, it's the best Christmas present ever. <laughs> So glad I took this phone call. Um, so we opened that store last year on my birthday. Last year's it's at the end of April. It mm-hmm. was uh, it was maybe a couple of days before we were really ready, but I was like, "We're ready enough. We got the license. It's my birthday like, <laughs> tomorrow. Like we're gonna open." So we we did a soft open weekend, um, and yeah, that was store number four. We were not expecting to open a fourth mm-hmm. store, especially that soon, because opening two coffee shops a year apart from each other is like that's way too fast unless you have a ton of funding and a big team 
and we had neither. <laughs> <laughs> so instead you just sacrifice your own mental health and uh, sleep. Yeah, um, truly. You know, it's it's one of those things where I, I look back at, or we all look back at the way things happen. And we're like, you know, we wouldn't change a thing, but like, wow. Um, I, I definitely joke. I'm like, man, if I could uh, ever have a back to the future moment where I like go back in time to with my DeLorean and like see myself outside of the the Kingfield store one day, like ready to open some more coffee shops. Like Lee, don't do it. <laughs> Just kidding. You can, you should do it. I, I say it's the most fun. I never want to have again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it's, you know, I'm, I'm so glad we went through all the stuff we did. And again, most fun you never want to have again. And I, I guarantee we're going to, or at least I'm going to continue to put myself through uh, those, uh, those crazy moments in my life. You know, I'm, I'm still young. Uh, I'm 33. Uh, so I'm like, I got a lot of energy. I've got a lot of ideas. Uh, and I'm, re- I'm really excited to continue to do them. Uh, hopefully I'll do them, uh, without some of the mistakes that we've made. Right. You know, cause you, you never know what the, the mistake is until you make it. Yeah. And then the, the last piece is the roasting program. Is that something that came into place when big Watt uh, came online? Yep. So when big Watt came on, uh, we realized like, okay, this is, five years ahead of schedule but in order to do big watt we have to own our own roasting because we can't be buying coffee Mm -hmm. um you know especially because our product is coffee and water only or at least our flagship product now we've got the flavored skews but uh it's coffee and water only so it's super transparent you know if it doesn't taste good like you can't fool the customer they're going to know like oh this is cool but it's not that good um and we wanted it to be as good as it was in the coffee shop and we knew we couldn't afford to buy that quality from someone else and then put it into a package and then sell it at a price point that was viable. Mm-hmm. And we're like, we, we don't want to sell this for seven bucks or whatever. So we're going to have to figure out our own roasting. Uh, so we, we did that. And, it, you know, with that, we're also able to really control our costs and control our quality. And we've got um, not only, in our opinion, some of like the best tasting product that's out on the market, uh, but because we own our own, our process start to finish, we're able to control the quality and like, you know, the grade of the coffee that goes into the can. And that's something that very few producers can say, you know, Stumptown and Blue Bottle and probably some others. But um, there's a lot of people out there that like, uh, yeah, they're, they're just beholden to what the spreadsheet says they can get, yeah. like, you know can only be this good but once you know if you own and control some parts of the process you have more room to spare so i we've been able to put some really fantastic coffees out into the world and uh yeah it's we're just really happy with it so the five-year plan goes from yeah let's have a couple locations maybe started thinking about roasting to Roasting four locations, a national distribution of a full cold brew line that wasn't even in the plans. And wasn't even the plans. I think yeah. if that's a good place to end, uh, as any could possibly be, <laughs> that's crazy. Uh, but congratulations! It's it's exciting to see someone like yourself doing it. What I think is the quote unquote right way. Because I, I look at some producers, they make a product that they say, and they're very good at marketing, and they convince the customer, this is a premium product, this is really good coffee, and then they taste it, and it's not good coffee. Right. And they go, okay, <laughs> if this is really good coffee, then I don't need to spend more on great coffee because it tastes the same or worse than my normal cup of Starbucks, whatever it may be. Right. And so I, I get excited when there's a product that boasts 
the process and then backs it up with a product. It's like, well, that's good for everybody because then they'll taste that and go, why does this taste better? Because it's better coffee because the processes are different. And so for that, like I get really excited when I see great products expand in that way. And I get very disheartened when I see bad products (laughs) expand for a whole nother set of reasons. But I'll end the episode there and I will end it as I always do and say, have a good day.